Before we come to Prime Minister's questions, I'd like to point out that live subtitles and British Sign Language interpretation of proceedings are available to watch on ParliamentLive.tv. We start with questions to Prime Minister Joe Gideon. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Joe Gideon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Tomorrow is the National Day of Reflection, a Marie Curie-led initiative bringing together communities across the UK to remember family, friends, neighbours and colleagues we have lost. Will the Prime Minister join me in thanking Stoke City Council for supporting my call for a postbox to heaven in Carmountside Cemetery and on the second anniversary of the tragic death of my constituent, two-year-old Harper Lee Fanthorpe, who swallowed a button battery? Will he thank her courageous mother, Stacey, for leading the campaign to raise awareness of the dangers of button batteries? And will he back my call for legislation to ensure greater product safety? Mr. Mr. Speaker, of course I join my honourable friend in thanking Stoke City Council. I'm very sorry to hear of Harper Lee's tragic case, and my thoughts are with her friends and family, and particularly her mother, Stacey. Uh, and And we are aware of the concerns about button batteries. The law is very clear that products available in the UK must be safe. The Office for Product and Safety Standards has published guidance on exactly this for manufacturers and is working with the Child Accident Prevention Trust to educate parents and childcare professionals on button bat and safety. Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Today we remember the innocent lives lost six years ago in a terror attack on Westminster Bridge. Amongst those tragically killed was PC Keith Palmer, who sacrificed his life to protect others. Police officers up and down the country work tirelessly every day to keep us safe, and we thank them for that. But as we saw this week, those brave officers are being let down. Dame Louise Casey found institutional homophobia, misogyny and racism in the Metropolitan Police. I accept those findings in full. Does the Prime Minister... Minister. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, I join with the uh, honourable gentleman paying tribute to PC Palmer and indeed all the other police officers um, who have lost their lives serving and those who do so much to keep us safe. Uh, I was appalled, Mr. Speaker, to read the descriptions of the abhorrent cases of officers who have betrayed the public's trust and abused their powers. And let me be clear, it is and was unacceptable and should never have happened. We have taken a series of steps already and the Government will also now work with the Mayor and the Metropolitan Commissioner to ensure that culture, standards and behaviour all improve. At the heart of this matter are the people whose lives have been ruined by what has happened and I know the whole House will agree with me that it is imperative that the Met works hard to regain the trust of the people it is privileged to serve. I take it from that answer that the Prime Minister does accept the Casey findings in full, including the institutional failures. Because nobody reading the Casey report can be left in any doubt about how serious this is, and doubt for a second that it is restricted to the Met. The report lays bare how those unfit to join the police are aided by patchwork vetting systems that leave the door open. If the Government backed Labour's plan for proper mandatory national vetting, 
we could end the farce that sees different police recruitment standards in different forces. Will he back that plan so we can make speedy progress? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, there is no need to back that plan because we are already taking action to tackle the issues that are raised in the Casey report. And it was actually two months ago. It was two months ago that I met with Dame Louise Casey and the Metropolitan Commissioner, and we introduced a series of measures. For instance, the College of Policing is currently updating the statutory code of practice for police officer vetting that all forces legally have to follow. All police forces are in the process of checking their officers against the police national database, and in weeks, Her Majesty's Independent Inspectorate will report back on their reinspection of all forces' vetting procedures. Now, these steps, of course, won't undo the terrible damage that have been previously committed, but we owe this action and more to the victims and survivors to ensure that such tragedies never happen again. Well, the problem with the Prime Minister's answer is what he's referring to isn't mandatory. How can it possibly be right to have different standards for recruitment in different police forces? No wonder the Casey report criticised what she calls the government's hands-off attitude to policing over the last 13 years. But let's call it what it really is, sheer negligence. The report also exposes chronic failures by the police to deal with rape cases, with officers using, and I quote, overstuffed or broken fridges containing the rape kits of victims. On his watch, rape charges are 1.6%. Yet the government still hasn't backed Labour's plan to have proper, high-quality rape and serious sexual offences units in every police force. Why not? Prime Minister. Mr Mr. Speaker, what, what Louise Casey also says is that primary public accountability of the Met sits with the Mayor of London. She described that relationship between the Mayor and the Met as, in her words, dysfunctional. But when it comes. So I, I hope when he stands up, he will also confirm to the House that he will take up these matters with the Labour Mayor of London so that he plays his part. But, but Mr. Speaker, the way rape victims were treated by the criminal justice system wasn't good enough, and that's why the government published an ambitious rape review action plan. It's right that we've extended Operation Sorteria across all police forces in the country. We've tripled the number of independent sexual violence advisers. We've improved the process of collecting phone evidence and being cross-examined. And since 2010, we've quadrupled funding for victim support services. That is a Conservative government doing everything we can to support victims and tackle predators. People are fed up to the back teeth with a government that never takes responsibility and just tries to blame everyone. They, they can shout if they're proud. If they're proud of the fact that nine, over 98% of rapists are never put before, if they want to shout about that, that's their record. Let them shout about it. You should be ashamed of yourself. The truth is simple. After 13 years of Tory government, crime is out of control and people are paying the price. Before Christmas, the BBC reported the shocking case of a woman in Armthorpe who had been beaten with a baseball bat by burglars three years ago. Nobody had been charged with that burglary, and she couldn't sleep at night. Under their watch, tragically, 
That's not an unusual case. So can the Prime Minister tell us what's the charge rate for theft and burglary across the country? Prime Minister. Well, Mr. Mr Speaker, actually, since 2019, neighbourhood crime is down by 25%. But he, he asked, he asked, he asked uh, rightly about what's happening with rape cases. So let me, just, let me just tell him that we are on track to meet our target of doubling the number of rape cases that are reaching our courts. Since, since the Rape Review Action Plan was published, we've seen police referrals double. We've seen charges double, and last year there was a 65% increase in rape convictions. But importantly, we also changed the law to ensure that rapists would spend more time in prison. But what did his shadow policing policing minister say? Prison doesn't prevent crime. It tells you everything that you need to know about the Labour Party. You can't trust them to keep Britain safe. Mr Speaker, but the Prime Minister stands there and pretends that everything's fine. He is so totally out of touch. He needs, he needs to get out of Westminster, get out of Kensington. And, and Mr Speaker, I don't mean... It's a big day today in the House, and it's a very important day. We do want to make progress. Holding us up is not advantageous to any of us. Mr Speaker, he needs to get out of Westminster... Get out of Kensington, and I don't mean to Malibu, to the streets of Britain. Go there and tell people it's all fine and see what reaction he gets. The answer he didn't want to give, although he knows it, is 4% of cases, 4% of burglary charges are charged. 96% of theft and burglary cases not even going before the courts. Burglars twice as likely to get away with it now as they were a decade ago. They should be ashamed of that record. And that cul-de-sac in Armthorpe has apparently seen 10 burglaries in 18 months, but only one of them has resulted in a prosecution. So rather than boasting and blaming others, why doesn't he tell the country when he's going to get the theft and burglary charge rate back to where it was before they wrecked policing? Mr Speaker, first of all, let me say North Yorkshire is a lot further away than North London. The lines as well, but I prefer to hear them rather than the jeering. Come on, Prime Minister. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Now then, we are going to make progress. <laughs> Mr. Shelbrook will be buying the teas in the tea room if we're not careful. Come on, Prime Minister. There will be Yorkshire teas, Mr. Speaker. Yeah. But since, Mr. Speaker, since the Conservatives came into power, crime is down 50%, Mr. Speaker. Violent crime down 40%. Burglary, the Honourable Gentleman mentioned burglary, burglary down 56%. Why? Because we've recruited 20,000 more police officers. We've given them the powers to tackle crime and we've kept serious offenders in prison for longer. All they've done is vote against greater protections for emergency workers. They've opposed tougher sentences for violent criminals, and they are failing to give the police the powers that they need. It's the same old Labour, soft on crime, soft on criminals. 
The only criminal investigation he's ever been involved in is the one that found him guilty of breaking the law. <laughs> I have prosecuted countless rapists. On the Prime Minister, I want officer. I am determined to hear the questions, whether it's the Leader of the Opposition or the Prime Minister. So I can. Sorry? I think, you'll be, I think you've got your first customer for tea, Mr Kurtz. We keep having this little problem. We'll have no more. No, then, just a moment. So, please, let's get through and let's just show some respect to both people at dispatch boxes. Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've prosecuted countless rapists and I support tougher sentences. But you have to catch the criminals first. And when 98% of rapists are not even being put before the court, that's a massive failure on the government. And if he wants to go to Armfort, which is in Yorkshire, why doesn't he go to that cul-de-sac when he gets out and about in Yorkshire and, and, and ask them about those 10 burglaries that haven't been prosecuted? The reality is, after 13 years of Tory government, they've done nothing on standards. Neighbourhood policing has been shattered and burglars and rapists walk the streets with impunity. Yep. It's the same every week from the Prime Minister, whether it's the cost of living crisis, crime running out of control or the state of the NHS. Why is his answer always to tell this British people they've never had it so good? Yeah. Right, Minister. Mr. Mr Speaker, let me just address the issue the honourable gentleman raised, because I said at the time I respected the decision the police reached and I offered an unreserved apology. But for the avoidance of doubt, Mr Speaker, at the moment that that happened, there was a full investigation by a very senior civil servant. The findings of which, the findings of which confirmed that I had no advanced knowledge about what had been planned, having arrived early for a meeting. But he doesn't need, he doesn't need me to tell him that. He's probably spoken to the report's author much more frequently than I have. Luke, the Prime Minister needs to answer the question. He doesn't need you to... Oh, oh, I don't think we need any more. Let's keep it that way. Prime Minister. Look, Mr Speaker, we're getting on. We're halving inflation by paying 50% of people's energy bills and freezing fuel duty. We're cutting... And it's the same for this side. Mr Gwynne, I don't need any more from the back benches here either. Can I just say, let's come... Mr Fabricant, not again. I'm just quite seriously... Today is a very big day. Some important decisions are going to be taken. So, please, I want to get this House moving on. Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> Mr Speaker, we're also cutting NHS waiting lists by resolving pay disputes and getting doctors back up. And, Mr Speaker, we're stopping the boats with a new bill to tackle illegal migration. That's a Conservative government delivering on the people's priorities. Holly Bumbycroft. Can I thank my honourable friend, the Prime Minister, for the efforts he has made to support the UK's steel industry? Yay! Can I tell him that we remain very concerned about job losses at British Steel in Scunthorpe? So, will he today reassure my constituents in North Lincolnshire that we will never see the end of UK steel making under his watch? Yay! Mr. Speaker, the UK steel industry 
can have no greater champion than my honourable friend. And I know that this must be a concerning time for British Steel employees, and we stand ready to work with her to support them. Now, she's right, industrial sectors, including steel, have been able to bid into competitive government funds worth £1 billion to help support them to cut emissions and become more energy efficient. And the government's recently announced British Industry Supercharger Fund can help boost competitiveness in UK's key energy intensive industries. And I look forward to working with her to ensure a thriving steel industry in our United Kingdom. The new SNP, Simon Flynn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'd like to begin by paying tribute to PC Palmer, who so tragically lost his life in defence of this Parliament and indeed what we all stand for democracy. Mr. Speaker, what worries the Prime Minister most about Brexit right now? Is it the likely 4% hit to UK productivity, or is it three former Tory leaders planning to vote down his deal this afternoon? Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, the Windsor, the Windsor framework, the Windsor framework represents. Just, just to help the chamber, I just to help everybody. I understand it's true, Prime Minister. Mr. Mr. Speaker, the Windsor framework represents a good deal for the people and families and businesses of Northern Ireland. It restores the balance of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and ensures Northern Ireland's place in our precious union. Uh, But what I would say to him, I was more intrigued to see the words of his own party's president, who just this past week have described his own party as being, in their words, in a tremendous mess. Mr Speaker, the reality is that whilst Westminster is once again consumed by the damage being caused by Brexit, the public at home are facing the biggest fall in living standards ever, the highest tax burden since the end of the Second World War, and inflation at 10.4%. When are the Conservative Party and, indeed, the Labour Party going to realise that Brexit can't work? Mr. Mr. Speaker, the actions that this government is taking are ensuring that fully half of most families' energy bills are being supported by this government. We're also making sure that we're delivering for people with the cutting NHS waiting lists, and that's something that we're happy to work with the Scottish Government to learn and share best practice with them on. But we're also, Mr Speaker, delivering on the people's number one priority, which is to stop the boats and end illegal migration. Unemployment claimant rate has declined significantly over the last decade, but there are still vacancies to fill and specific groups to help. And on Monday, the Employment Minister and I visited Arnold Job Centre, where Kelsey and her team are welcoming local employers to speak directly to job seekers, and a dedicated 50-plus work coach is getting more from that bracket into work. So would my right more friend join me in congratulating the staff at Arnold and other job centres across the country on the proactive work that they're doing, and when time allows, would you come to visit Arnold Job Centre in person see the great work they're doing? Well, can I thank my honourable friend and join him in thanking all the staff at Arnold Job Centre for their hard work. I shall keep uh, his kind invitation to visit in mind. He mentioned the uh, over 50s. 
and uh, or, he mentioned the over 50s, or as my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, described them, are more experienced workers. And he was right to focus on them because, together with the Work and Pension Secretary, we are putting in place a range of measures to help support them to return to and stay in the labour market. And that is something that not only will help us continue to bring inflation down, but will support those people to have healthy, productive, fulfilling lives. Neil Hamby. The government recently confirmed that Scotland generated and sent south 35 billion kilowatt hours of energy in 2021. That number will rise to 124 billion in less than eight years' time. For this multi billion pound bounty, Scotland will see no revenue, no manufacturing or supply chain jobs. In our land of energy plenty, why should our people be cold and hungry and businesses failing as a result of his government's robbery? So what has the Prime Minister to say in defence of this naked exploitation of Scotland's people and its resources? Mr. Mr Speaker, actually, this government is a strong supporter of Scotland's naughty oil and gas industry. And actually, it's the economically illiterate policy of, I think, almost all opposition parties to prohibit any new exploration of fossil fuels in the North Sea, which would have us then pay billions of pounds to foreign energy companies and then ship that energy here with twice the carbon emissions. It is a completely absurd policy, Mr Speaker, but it's bad for our security, it's bad for our economy, and that's why we're better off with the Conservatives in charge. Thank you very much indeed, Mr Speaker. The island has been getting a better deal in recent years, and I thank the Prime Minister for that, especially before he was a Prime Minister, when he was working with me in different roles in, when he was in government to make that happen, and I'm grateful. However, the island remains the only sizable island in the UK without a fixed link, uh, 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 separated from the mainland by sea, which does not receive a funding uplift to support local government services. And this injustice has been ongoing now for 50 years. And all the evidence, Mr Speaker, shows that it costs more to provide local services on an island than on the mainland. Will the Prime Minister work with me and his ministers to overcome this injustice this year? Thank you. Well, can I thank my honourable friend for his continued campaigning on behalf of his constituents. Uh, it was a pleasure to spend many happy childhood holidays on the island, and I enjoyed visiting him more recently there as well. The Isle of Wight Council will benefit from a 10% increase in their funding in cash terms for the next financial year, and have been awarded an additional million pounds in recognition of the unique circumstances of the island, as my honourable friend points out. But I will ensure that he does get a meeting with the Minister for Local Government to carry on the good work that he and I started, and make sure that his local constituents get the support that they need. Rem Stringer. Mr Speaker, we now know from the Telegraph's lockdown <coughs> uh, files that during COVID, at the very heart of government, science wasn't being followed and rational discourse had been abandoned. Uh, this had dire consequences for children's education, mortality rates amongst the elderly, the economy and access uh, to the health service. Lessons must be learnt, uh, Mr Speaker, but we can't wait ten years for the independent inquiry to tell us what we should do next time when the inevitable epidemic arrives. Will the Prime Minister agree to a short-term focused inquiry uh, that can give us recommendations so that we do better next time? Uh, well, Mr Speaker, as with any public inquiry, the process and timing 
of the inquiry stages are for the independent chair to decide. As Baroness Hallett has previously set out, she intends to gather written evidence throughout this year, with public hearings also starting this year. They held a preliminary hearing in February, which covered pandemic preparedness and resilience, and they have set out dates for preliminary hearings into core political and administrative decision-making across the UK throughout this month. But most importantly, the honourable gentleman will recognise it is an independent inquiry, and it is for the independent chair to set the terms. Jerome May. Mr Speaker, more than one and a half million people living outside London stand to be impacted by the Mayor's new London-wide ultra-low emission zone. Labour and the Liberal Democrats, they're all for the ULES charge. They don't care about the cost of living crisis. So does my right honourable friend agree with me that the best way to protect commuters and small businesses from the spread of this unfair £12.50 a day tax is to vote Conservative on May the 4th. Well, Mr. Mr Speaker, my honourable friend is absolutely right. And, and he, he, I think he also failed to mention that just this week we have seen, we've seen Labour in Wales introduce more plans for further road charging as well, increasing cost pressures for public and businesses. And I'd urge the parties opposite to listen and stand up for the public and small businesses, just as the Conservatives do. Yeah. Bardell. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. When my wee brother was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis eight years ago, it's fair to say it turned our lives upside down. I'm incredibly proud of the man he is and all that he's achieved whilst living with this life-limiting condition. And my Livingston constituent, Stephen Sharp, manages local football team The Fulshay in Stonyburn. He has Crohn's disease and he lives with a stoma. And he's like many of our constituents up and down the UK, living with a life-limiting condition, trying to provide for their families whilst holding down jobs with a condition and disease that wreaks havoc on their body. So, Mr Speaker, given one in four people wait more than a year for diagnosis, will the Prime Minister, and indeed the House, support the campaign to cut the crap and uh, get diagnosed early for uh, Crohn's and colitis? And would he meet with my constituent Stephen and I to look, look at what more can be done for awareness, research and funding? Can I thank the uh, Honourable Lady for her question and pay tribute to, I think, her brother and also Stephen for everything that they're doing to raise awareness of this issue. I'd be very happy to meet with her and Stephen. It is it's something that I am familiar with, and it is a very difficult condition for people to live with, and it's right that they get the support and attention that they deserve, and I look forward to that discussion with her. Sir Jeremy Wright. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My constituent, Jamie Scott, spent four weeks in a coma and remained seriously disabled as a result of a COVID vaccination. He and his family continue to believe that mass vaccination is the right policy, but it must also surely be right to ensure that those, that tiny minority who are seriously injured as a result are properly compensated. In the absence of court cases, it's in no one's interest to litigate. The current limit on compensation is £120,000, even for very serious and lifelong injury, and anyone who is disabled by less than 60% gets nothing at all. That cannot be right. Will my right honourable friend look urgently at changing it? Mr Speaker, it is important to start by recognising the importance of vaccines in protecting us all, and not least the fantastic rollout of the COVID vaccines across the UK. Um, But I am very sorry to hear about the case that my right honourable friend raises. In the extremely rare case of a potential injury from a vaccine covered by the scheme, a one-off payment can be awarded. Uh, This is not designed to be a compensation scheme, and it does not prevent 
the injured person in pursuing a legal compensation claim with the vaccine manufacturer. We are taking steps to reform vaccine damage payment schemes by modernising the operations and providing more timely outcomes. But of course, I'll be happy to talk to the honourable gentleman further about it. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The new inflation stats this morning show food inflation is at 18%, the highest in 45 years. Millions are living in food and fuel poverty because of this government's failures and political decisions to enable grotesque profiteering at the expense of our communities. How on earth can the Prime Minister claim his plan is working, or is it in his eyes? Is it a success that so many people are struggling with their weekly food shop? Mr Speaker, Speaker, the figures that have been recently published showed that since 2010 there are two million fewer people living in poverty thanks to the actions of this and previous Conservative governments. Of course, no one wants to see people struggling with week-to-week bills like food, which is why it is so imperative we stick to our economic plan. And As the OBR have said, we are on track to halve inflation by the end of this year. That is the most important thing we can do to ease a burden on people. And In the meantime, we have a range of programmes, whether that is free school meals or indeed the holiday activities and food programme, to provide support to the most vulnerable families who need our help. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. £60 million to improve transport links from Wensby to the rest of Black Country, £4 million for Wensby High Street, and last week, the most important part of the budget, the £22.5 million to level up Tipton Town Centre. Mr Speaker, this Government has put a vote of confidence in my communities, one they have not had for nearly 50 years. Can I ask my right honourable friend, delivery is going to be absolutely key on these projects, because he can ensure, using his good office, that we absolutely get this delivered on time and realise the potential of my communities. Well, can I pay tribute to my honourable friend for his tireless campaigning on behalf of his local communities? I'm delighted that we are investing across the West Midlands, but particularly in places like Wensbury and Tipton. And again, we will work with him to ensure that those investments are indeed delivered, working with the local councils, Transport for West Midlands, and the West Midland Combines Authority. Those investments are going to transform people's lives and spread opportunity in his area, and he deserves enormous credit for making that happen. Very grateful, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, households in Gateshead have seen their energy bills triple over the last two years. They've endured not just the energy unit price increase, but the daily electricity standing charges increased from an average of 22 pence in 2019 to 58 pence from next month, an increase of 155% in standing charges over £200 per year. To many of my constituents, particularly those in low-income households, this seems like a company tax just for having the temerity to be connected to the network. And these schemes will continue long after energy support schemes have ended. So will the Prime Minister commit to ending the regressive increases in standing charges and instruct Ofgem to return them to 2019 levels or even end them completely? Mr Mr. Speaker, thanks to the Chancellor, the Government is providing support to a typical household energy bill, around half of that bill over the winter, support that was extended in the budget and will be worth £1,500 to a typical family. But we went further, Mr Speaker, for those most vulnerable families. As the Chancellor announced, we will be ending the discrepancy between unit charges for those on prepayment metres, something that many in this House have called for, and also providing generous cost-of-living payments worth £900 to the most vulnerable families. Martin Vickers. Uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
Mr Speaker, two of my constituents, George and Carol Ellis, are, are my guests here in the gallery today. Sadly, in 2021, their son died by suicide. Uh, George was a, a member of the Yorkshire Regiment and had become depressed uh, following uh, a, a one of his comrades who had taken his own life. Uh, in memory of George, uh, Adrian and uh, Carol have set up a support group where, which marries up one veteran uh, to, uh, with another who uh, is able to talk through and hopefully help them. Uh, the uh, support group is called Get, uh, Get Emotions Out uh, after George. Uh, would the Prime Minister join me in offering uh, condolences to Adrian and Carol and also uh, his support for the work that they're now doing? Yeah. Can I join my honourable friend in sending my and the whole House's condolences to George's friends and family and thank his parents for the brave work they are doing to raise awareness of veterans' mental health. Support is available for anyone experiencing suicidal thoughts, including from the Samaritans' helpline. And thanks to the excellent work of our honourable friend, the Veterans Minister, we are working specifically to support veterans' mental health through Op Courage, which is a bespoke mental health and wellbeing service for veterans in the NHS, backed by considerable funding, which was increased in the recent budget. And that fully integrated service will be launched next month. But again, I pay tribute to George's parents for all the incredible work that they are doing. Yeah, yeah. Alison Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My constituent, Mariam Amiri, came to the UK from Afghanistan on a special on a spousal visa back in 2016. The Home Office have just refused her renewal and advised she should return to Afghanistan. Oh, Mariam is uh, an educator. Due to start a university course in September, she's a valued community activist. She's a vocal opponent of the Taliban. She is married to a man who worked for British forces, and her family is currently being persecuted in Afghanistan. She's been trying to get them here since Afghanistan fell. Can the Prime Minister think of any barriers or hardships Marion might face in returning to a country where there is not even any means of applying for a visa? And will he personally intervene? As the Immigration Minister has yet to reply to me, despite raising this three weeks ago. Mr Speaker, obviously it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on an individual's visa case, but I will ensure, I will ensure, I will ensure that the Honourable Lady gets a response from the Home Office with regard to that particular case. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I ask the Prime Minister to pay tribute to and congratulate my constituent, Max Woosie, best known as the boy in the tent, whose three-year adventure camping outside is drawing to a close. To date, he has raised over three-quarters of a million pounds for the excellent North Devon Hospice, and will my right honourable friend wish everyone taking part in his final adventure, a camping festival at Broomhill Estate, great success. Well, can I uh, join my honourable friend in paying tribute to Max and everyone else taking part in this fantastic initiative and congratulate them on raising such a considerable sum of money for a very worthy local cause, and I look forward to hearing how the rest of it goes, but very well done. Final question, Alan Brown. Thank you, Mr Speaker. While the Treasury receives an additional £65 billion revenue from Scotland's oil and gas, they have only allocated £20 billion for carbon capture, but nothing for Scotland. They have cut the renewable energy budget by a third. They have only allocated £10 million for Scotland's world-leading tidal stream and failed to back pump storage hydro, but yet they want us to contribute our share towards the £35 billion nuclear power station. Isn't it the case that within the Union, Scotland is the energy, but Westminster takes the powers? Yeah. 
Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, not only are we supporting Scotland's North Sea oil and gas industry, we're also providing £20 billion of funding for further carbon capture and storage and does want to work and provide clarity for ACORN regarding their future path. But also, I think the honourable gentleman raised the issue of tidal power, and I am pleased to tell him that actually that is now included in the contracts for difference allocations, and there's 40 megawatts of new tidal stream power by four projects across Scotland and Wales in the last year. That's this government delivering energy security across the United Kingdom. Complete questions.